Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Control All Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. Before I get started with today's episode, if you are feeling unfulfilled and unhappy at your corporate job, but not quite sure what else you'd want to do, well, my one-on-one career coaching program is designed to help you pivot from a perfect on-paper job into a perfect-for-you career. I also share a ton of career tips on my Instagram at ongjennifer underscore. So make sure you follow me there as well. Today, I'm also sharing my three-step framework to help you figure out what exactly you're interested in and how to translate all of that into a career. It's a framework that has helped me and my clients from Google, Amazon, Accenture, law firms, Vanguard, and more identify their dream job. Want it? Check out the show notes to today's episode. All right, let's jump right into today's episode. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sarah, the founder of Retycle, which is a luxury resale platform focused on buying and selling secondhand children's wear. Sarah actually grew up in Canada and worked at luxury department store Halt Renfrew before she actually uprooted her whole life and moved to Hong Kong, where she worked at Lane Crawford, DFS, and Shanghai Tang before starting Retycle. So why did Sarah decide to move to Hong Kong and why did she decide to start Retycle? And how does she do all of this while balancing motherhood? I'll hand over to Sarah now to share her story. So lovely to, to have you on the podcast today. Great so to I, be here. Thank you for having me. So I thought I'd start off, um, you know, really just talking about the early days of your career, maybe even before you get started before you got started um, with your career. So I know you went to school at McGill um, and, you know, you then decided to to go into fashion, but you actually didn't study fashion or you didn't go to a fashion school. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about those early days and how you decided to get into a career in fashion. Sure. Um, yeah, I was uh, like many people going into university, a little bit lost for what I would I would focus on. So I I went into a general arts degree, and then uh, I met someone uh, sort of by happen chance, arranged through my dad to have lunch with somebody in the in the fashion industry, and uh, and he ran something called Federated Department Stores, which uh, had a number of American department stores uh, underneath their umbrella. And during that lunch, he told me about a buying program uh, that was part of the Federated Department Stores program. And through everything that he said, I got super excited about um, the opportunity and, and what it might mean to be a buyer as a career. And he did say during that lunch that the prerequisite for getting into the program was either a commerce degree or an economics degree. And so from that lunch, I, I decided what to, to major on and I, I set my focus on getting into the program. So uh, in within a BA, I, I chose an economics and commerce degree. So, and that set my set my course. So sometimes these little happen chance meetings or uh, yeah, one one small interaction or conversation can, can set the the trail the course of your life (laughs) um and were you interested in fashion already back then yeah I was I was working part-time at Club Monaco so during high school I wanted to make some pocket money on the side so I I worked at Club Monaco and did definitely have an interest in in fashion but didn't didn't really understand or know uh what type of pursuits there were within the industry Mm -hmm. so I was still quite early days in discovery 
And so did you consider other paths within fashion, like designing or marketing or some of the other I, roles? Yeah, I did dabble. I do remember taking a fashion design course. I can't remember. I think it might've been at Ryerson or something just on the side. I think I did it in the evenings. Um, wasn't for me. I don't think I thought I was I was creative enough for um, for designing from scratch. So I, I didn't actually end up pursuing anything in that on that side of the business. And then I did work in marketing uh, during one summer. So I would highly recommend for anyone young to do internships and anything you think you have an interest in because often even a two-month stint can can kind of <laughs> set the course for whether that that would be something that you would be interested in doing full-time so I worked in uh in advertising and marketing for one summer and again uh, realized that that probably wasn't for me either so uh yeah I tried on a couple of hats before before this mm, got it got it so it was more like you picked an industry and then within the industry you found the right role for yourself um yeah. and it was through a process of test driving it, elimination, seeing if you would enjoy it. Um, yes, exactly. Cool. And so, you know, after you graduated, you decided you wanted to be a buyer and you you got your first job as a, as a buyer, right? Tell us a little bit about that. You joined a Canadian luxury apartment store, right? Yeah. So I did end up getting into the federated uh, buying program and I worked at Bloomingdale's in New York for the summer before graduating. And then upon graduating, I didn't have a visa to work in in the state. So I would have had to have been sponsored to continue uh, in New York after school. So I did end up coming back to Toronto where I'm from. And I worked for Hold Renfrew, which is our uh, luxury department store, and uh, they have stores across Canada. And I started again as uh, I think my role title was probably assistant buyer, and uh, and that's where I got my my start. That's awesome, and that was kind of like the dream job that you got into, right? Yeah, it was. Um... It was exactly where I wanted to be and what I wanted to be doing. So I felt very fortunate to be both at a company that I that I aspired to be in and also in a role that, uh, that yeah, that's what I, I had set my, my dreams on about three years prior. That's awesome. And so I know you stayed there for a couple of years. And so what was what was the time like there? And, and I guess what made you decide to to move? Yeah, I, I did love working for Holtz. I, I was there for about three years and I was uh, a keener and I, I tried continually to work uh, both my hardest and and best and uh, and ended up, I think I had two promotions while there. So ended up being a buyer in my last role. So there's sort of assistant uh, associate and then buyer. And then what ends up happening in Canada, it's a fairly small fashion market and uh, and those who are more senior to me, uh, had probably at least a good 10 years ahead of them before they were leaving their their roles. So what started to happen was that I was very ambitious and I recognized that there was a ceiling um, or at least a perceived ceiling, not in terms of um, the fact that there could be role progression, just that those were, who were in more senior roles weren't likely to go anywhere anytime soon. And then the other piece of why I chose going into fashion was that I, I loved the pairing of travel and and, and a career. So I really wanted a career that would um, yeah, be a catalyst for travel. And so I, I found sitting in Canada, I was really craving uh, even more travel. I was mostly going to New York at the time for, uh, for work. And I, I became very interested in what was happening in China in my industry because 
luxury was just exploding in China and there was such an emergent appetite for all of the, the brands that, that were in our portfolio, whereas Canada was a very conservative market and moving very slowly. And so I wanted to be closer both to where the activity action growth was in my industry, um, but also I was really uh, excited about having a life adventure. And at the time, uh, there was no website, and I was—I had my eye on Lane Crawford, and I was looking at what was what was happening, uh, mostly in Hong Kong and Singapore, because I couldn't make it all the way to China without without speaking uh, the language. So, um, so I was really looking at Singapore and Hong Kong as as potential opportunities from from Toronto, and we had had a couple of senior management from Holt Renfrew uh, leave to go to Lane Crawford, and so it put Lane Crawford on my on my radar at the time though it was very difficult I think that would have been 2006 uh, it was very difficult to find any information about anything across the world because yeah there was if you can imagine there was basically no websites <laughs> that's honestly so cool because you you basically grew up in Canada you know went to school in Canada kind of lived most of your life in Canada right to take that jump and go halfway across the world and what was that like yeah, it's, um, I was in my 20s, so mid 20s, and uh, I packed three suitcases, moved to Hong Kong, and uh, and didn't have a job when I moved here. So I had uh, contacts in hand, one of which was at Lane Crawford. And I spent the first three weeks interviewing when I, when I arrived with the contacts. And I, I really made a decision that I didn't want to take a job through phone interviews because at the time we didn't even have zoom so there wouldn't have been video interviews and uh, I wanted to know who I would be working for and what the environment would be like before oh, committing wow. so yeah so, Wait, so I and it, wow okay so you actually moved before you got the 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 the, yeah. the job Wow. Okay. Was, That's actually so brave of you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it, was, it was 2007 and it was a different landscape than I was coming armed with what I felt was quite good international experience of, of three years. And uh, this was still, even Hong Kong was an emergent luxury fashion place if you can imagine because now we're where we have luxury stores on basically every block but uh back then it was it was more than 15 years ago and it was still emergent and so coming armed with an international experience uh in a in a very tenured um place like Holt Renfrew was valuable here and so I I, I did know that that experience would go the distance mm -hmm. um I, I had the confidence that I would be able to land something and uh, it may have been misplaced but I I did uh, I did end up working at Lane Crawford and uh, and in many ways there were similarities because my role was was fairly similar the brands were familiar um, but what I really wanted in terms of that growth opportunity was learning about a different customer and learning about a different culture and that uh, that was what was much more of the uh, learning experience and growth experience was both uh, in terms of an internal culture because the company uh, had a different internal culture. I was working with primarily Chinese colleagues. Uh, and then also the customer, I was learning about a completely different demographic. And, uh, and so that was both interesting, exciting, challenging, and, and exactly what I had come for. That, that is amazing. I think that's really honestly so brave um, <laughs> for, for you to, to, to do that. And, and did you have like a plan B or anything like if in case things didn't work out? 
I think um, one of the things that my parents gave me was a sense of, um, I guess, always a soft landing. Like I could always go back to the life that I came from. And I always uh, felt that I had this very strong um, home, sense of home, and that uh, they were there uh, should I should I need to, to return or want to return. And so I always felt like I had a safe uh, place to go back to, which I think gave me the bravery to go. <laughs> and, uh, and so, no, I always knew that I could come back to my former life. So I think that, um, that for 15 years has felt <laughs> very uh, safe in terms of a fallback plan. And I, I did only come with a one to two year plan. I really felt that this was just uh, a short stint and a a chance to do something adventurous. So I, I didn't have a plan longer than that, that initial first, first couple of years. That actually, I love the way that you say that. Cause I think a lot of people think that change is so scary and like, oh my God, if I leave my life here, I'll never be able to come back to it. When actually in reality, it's maybe not so scary. Like you could go and if things really didn't work out and you hated living abroad um, and the role sucked, you could always come back. Like that is an option. I feel like a lot of people think that like once I leave this job behind or once I leave this life behind, I could never return. And it feels so scary to make such a big change. But I think hearing from your story, it, it, it's it's maybe not that, not that scary to come back to it. Yeah. And I also think, honestly, I think sometimes people when they leave their their company and they're they're not sure about whether they want to make this big move to a new career, a new company, uh, underestimate the fact that a lot of companies, if you're a good employee, they'll take you back. We've had three, I think at least three people at Retycle leave and boomerang back. And that is completely mm. fine. I think that's an incredible uh, opportunity for people to test what they think they want and then it, if it doesn't work out then as long as you've been a great employee and you've, you're you're missed at your company then chances are that door remains open and I think I felt that same way even with Holt Renfrew was that I had left things on such good terms that I was still fairly confident that if there was a role that I would be welcomed back and so I think um, it's something that yeah young people should always and, and older as well should always keep in mind that uh, that as long as you leave at a point where you haven't tarnished anything and uh, and everything is still on good footing that that the door often does remain open because you're you're the lowest risk to an employer. Uh, is someone you already know, right? So. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I think that that's what gave me the comfort to actually pivot from finance into fashion because I was like, well, I've built up yeah. some good connections here. If yeah. I actually absolutely hate my life in, in fashion and, you know, I could probably come begging for a job and, you know, <laughs> they would yeah. probably hire me back. So I think that really helps to give you that sort of soft landing that um, yeah, you talked absolutely. about. Um, cool. So then you ended up actually staying in Hong Kong for... I think it has it been 10 years or, or, or even more? 15. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> so, you know, what started off as, you know, just like a one to two year stint ended up actually staying for, for 15 years. And you built your own company even um, in Hong Kong, which we'll, we'll get to, but um, let's, let's maybe talk through a little bit, you know, what it was like um, after Lane Crawford. I know you, you then decided to go into DFS and then, after that into to Shanghai Tang. Maybe walk us through um, what were you thinking about and how did you make those career decisions? 
Yeah, I think I think one of the things that's always driven me to change is as soon as I feel too comfortable, as soon as I start to feel boredom creeping in or that I have some sense of mastery over my role, um, I look for change or I, di I did particularly in, uh, in my corporate career. And then I always... I think I always had a North Star of I, I want to be running a company. So whether it was a fashion brand or a department store, I just I, I always had the ambition to lead the organization. And so what I what I felt I needed was not a singular path through the industry, not a merchandising, not a buying path, but I needed to collect experiences which would give me a more holistic uh, view and experience on the industry. So each move I made was really with that intent to experience a different side of the business. So when I moved from Lane Crawford to uh, DFS, it was really, I felt that I had some level of mastery over the demographic that I wanted to understand and learn. So I already knew the role uh, from my previous uh, company, but I was really trying to understand the consumer and um, and just understand Asia much better than I, than I had before coming. And then when I moved to DFS, I was looking for much more of the financial acumen inventory uh, management side, because at Lane Crawford, it was very fashion oriented. It was just about getting the best product, which was my role, best product in the stores uh, and being recognized as a fashion leader. That was the, that was the main intent. Um, and it was not uh, uh, managing inventory to the, to the nth degree and, uh, and more of that rigor around, um, around the business. And so I wanted to move to a company uh, where that was the focus. So DFS was much less about being recognized as a fashion leader and much more about uh, profit and and uh, rigor in terms of inventory and financial planning. So that was exactly what I, I went for. It was a much bigger company and it had come from, uh, from San Francisco and relocated to Hong Kong at the time. So uh, it was an incredible school. I think it's important to always look for what's missing in your um, mosaic of, of opportunities and learning experiences and then try to try to work for the best companies reputationally and uh, and DFS did did carry that reputation and I think uh, well founded so uh, I learned a lot at, at that experience and um, I, I did end up missing the fashion side because it was really a, a company that was, I, I personally felt like I lived in a spreadsheet and it was very little about the product and it was much more about um, about just managing a business and that business could be anything. So um, I loved it for what it was, but uh, but then missed the, the product side. So I moved to Shanghai Tang, which was an incredible experience to be back uh, engaged with product, but in a much different capacity again. So I was hired to run product development and merchandising and planning, which was merchandising and planning was very familiar to me from my previous roles, but product development was completely new um, and much more creative than, than what I had been doing in the past. So I uh, started with product development and then ended up acquiring two additional departments, which was to manage the whole design team uh, and also the visual merchandising. So also those areas were, were new to me. So I, I had my hands in a lot of uh, different aspects of, of product and, and management within, within Shanghai Tang. It was again, a much smaller company 
but offered this opportunity for a breadth of, of experience. So I um, was very grateful to make all of those uh, changes and, uh, and particularly at Shanghai Tang got an experience of, of much more of the senior leadership and, um, and working yeah, both with the big company Rishma and, um, and working alongside the CEO. So it was an interesting opportunity. And, uh, and again, yeah, just liked wearing different hats with each, each role and growing. And I actually wanted to ask you, because they actually are all somewhat different roles, right? You went from like a buyer role to maybe more of like a numbers role to maybe more of like a product role. How did you manage to convince your new employer to hire you without quote unquote starting all over again? I think I always, uh, when pursuing these roles, I would always had a lot of determination to prove that I was the right fit. So I remember with Shanghai Tang, I, di- I didn't have the product development background, but I def- definitely did have the merchandising and planning. And I think I put together a 50 page PowerPoint that that proved that I, that I, or I felt that could prove that I, I could also tackle the product development side. So um, that was more of like a creative presentation. So I, I put together a presentation showing what the assortment in the store was today and where I would move it in terms of um, yeah, product development and use, using my merchandising skills to inform uh, those decisions or at least that, um, that presentation. So, and then with DFS, although I hadn't had planning experience, uh, a big part of merchandising and buying is, is planning. Um, and not all companies have those two roles delineated. So I think I was able to show that um, both with my university degree that I had a bit of a, a math brain and then also uh, that I had been managing essentially, yeah, forecasts and not necessarily PNL, but I was I was man- managing um, forecasts. So that was that was I I would always leverage uh, historical experience and and try and prove that I I could learn this new new area. Got it, got it. That's a great, really great tip for 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 people listening to this podcast because I think a lot of people are really nervous, like oh, if I pivot slightly into a different role. Well, I have to start all over again. And I think it's really about how do you take your prior experience and leverage that and make sure that that's still part of, or that you can still contribute a part of that into, into your new role. Yeah. And I think it's also, I, I look for this with candidates that come to the company is just proving that you're curious enough that you're going to learn. And, and I think that's, that's mm-hmm. something that's quite innate for people. You either have that drive uh, to learn and, and that's something that you do in your spare time. And if something's of interest to you, you go deep. And so I, I look for that with candidates now, because I think as long as you have that drive to learn and that curious nature, then, then anything is possible, especially, especially now when we have all of these tools available to us. So maybe it's more like the mindset and the values and and maybe the softer skills that are quite easily transferable between between different roles. So then I know after Shanghai Tang, you actually took a bit of a career break because you then became a mom. Um, would love to know what your thoughts were at at that point in time, like when you found out you were pregnant, did you think, okay, like I do want to focus on raising a family and let me take a bit of a break or was it a more nuanced or difficult decision at, at that point? Yeah, it was, it was difficult. I, um, I left Shanghai Tang uh, willingly. I was, re- I was ready to move on. 
but I was also interviewing actively for other roles and uh, and had been offered a role at a big uh, fashion company and um, and it was a difficult decision to turn down but I was about six weeks pregnant at the time and I I lacked role models within the industry, both in Canada and, and in Hong Kong, where I saw that this career could be paired with a family. I just didn't see it in front of me. I, there were senior women within the industry, but they typically didn't have kids. Uh, and then otherwise, uh, they were men that were occupying those, those senior roles. And I, I didn't see examples of women that were balancing both uh, family and, and career, and particularly in the area of fashion, but many many roles in fashion, uh, there's a lot of travel involved and um, sometimes two, three weeks at a time. And so it was not a common uh, marriage of those two two roles. And, uh, and so I was struggling with that. I just didn't know uh, what that looked like or how it would fit. And, uh, and my husband had a, a busy job at the time also with a lot of travel. And so um, I turned down the role with, uh, with the company that offered it to me, it was Ralph Lauren at the time, and decided that I was just going to take a breather for the first time in my life and, um, and just settle into becoming a mom. And uh, yeah, I didn't, didn't really know what that looked like either, but I knew that I wanted to pursue that with the same level of dedication and ambition that I had with my career. And, uh, and didn't feel like a natural maternal figure. So I wanted to also lean into that and, and develop that sense of uh, excitement and, um, and nurturing uh, and, uh, and becoming a mom with sort of full, full attention. So yeah, I, um, I stepped off the, the corporate track. And was that a difficult decision for you? Because you sound like someone who is a high achiever, pretty gung-ho about your career, you know, had very clear goals um, and you know, achieved a lot of the things that you wanted to achieve in in your career. Was it tough to take on this kind of new new identity and and, and take some time off? It was, but it felt like sort of you know when you listen to the signs, I felt like everything was sort of pointing to um, this was the the right decision. And I was also a bit burnt out. I mean, I had I had been very ambitious and was was pursuing. Uh, this track and path and I had worked very hard and um, and had experienced some corporate politics that that had been quite draining and uh, I was also ready for for a bit of a pause and to reevaluate what I what I really wanted to to do in the next chapter and so how much time did you take away from or like how, how long did you you step away from um, from work before actually starting your own your own company uh my wheels were always turning but I I had <laughs> so I was pregnant at the time and uh so I had Henry my first and the idea for Retickle came I want to say early months like maybe oh, he was two or three months old at the time mm -hmm. and um he's now eight uh, but I didn't act on it at that time. I was just more doing anecdotal research, speaking to friends, uh, yeah, just putting together notes and um, yeah, very early days at that point. Um, and then didn't actually launch the company until I was seven months pregnant with my second, who's now six. Um, so I, it was, it was quite slow. I would say in those early days of just incubating on the idea and uh, and putting it up against 
to other people to see if it stuck. And, um, and then I found it very difficult because I was non-technical um, to find the right team to build the site. So I had, because I'm a merchant and I had that type of mindset of, I think product comes easily to me. I can, I can imagine what a user experience should be like. And, um, and uh, that piece came easily to me, but the tech side and trying to find a team and create a team around the build uh, took, took me a while. So that also was several months uh, before finding somebody that could, could build the site for me and figuring out yeah, what, type of, what type of website, what type of tools were, were required was all a steep learning curve for me. I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you know that I do have a one-on-one career coaching program designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing your dream career. Do you feel unfulfilled and unhappy at your job despite having this perfect, prestigious, high-paying job? Are you great at chasing and acing other people's dreams, but have no idea what your own dreams and goals are? Do you know that deep down, you need to quit your job, but you're not quite sure what else you would even do? If this sounds like you, well, I'm sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion. Want it? Check out the show notes to today's episode to download the free guide now. All right, back to the episode. So actually, maybe tell us a little bit about Retycle and how did it get started? I know you said the idea kind of came about with your first child. Um, So maybe maybe tell us a little bit about how the, the idea came about. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah, I became a mom and I think for, for lots of, uh, first time moms, first time parents, you, you just, your world gets shaken up and you start to reevaluate, um, who you are, what your purpose is, your career, uh, where your place is in the world. And I think the, the feeling that I found quite overwhelming was that I, I didn't feel that I would be proud to tell my son, uh, what I was doing. And, and I, I think that came from the point of view that uh, my role had been quite superficial. I was really um, on the front lines of fashion. My whole career was about consumption. I was just about pushing the next trend and getting people to buy the next thing and potentially feel bad about themselves so that they would buy more of the latest and, and uh, products rolling in. So I, I didn't feel very good about that or my place within the industry, even though I loved fashion, I just uh, wasn't feeling very purposeful. And at the same time, I could tell kids uh, and him in particular at that early stage were incredibly wasteful. I mean, by no fault of their own, just just by being born, they were um, very wasteful. Everything they use is of temporary nature. And at the time I, I wasn't cloth diapering, I was using disposable diapers and I was just overwhelmed by the amount of waste that, that he was creating or that we were creating together. And, uh, and that was one of the, the feelings that came up. And then I had received a ton of hand-me-downs from a friend and I felt a bit overwhelmed by how much she had given me in terms of value. And, uh, and I attributed a secondhand value to everything she had given me and gave her a gift card uh, in return just to say thank you. And she was thrilled and I was thrilled. And I thought, okay, well, there's an exchange of value here. Um, she has three kids. She doesn't want these things anymore. And I, I do, they're of great value to me. And I feel really uh, in a way indebted to her. And I, I wanted to, to repay her for her kindness. And she still has three kids to close. So they, they have this perpetual need as well. 
Um, and so I, yeah, also staring at a closet of, of outgrown things myself, I, I felt like there just had to be a way to exchange what was still perfectly good for another family, but do it in a way that was convenient, efficient, desirable, and none of those things is, existed at the time. So um, most people, if they were even attempting to pass on the value to another family, uh, were doing it through Facebook groups, a uh, very fragmented way, very inconvenient to meet people at the MTR stations. Um, and so, and then otherwise the channels were, were charitable donations. And that was also very difficult in Hong Kong. I called a number of charities to try and donate uh, Henry's outgrown clothes and, and they said no. And that was, that is still today quite typical because um, charities don't have space to just uh, store mm -hmm. anything and everything that people want to give to them. And we can't just shift all of our earthly belongings to, to charities and hope that they will have the downstream uh, beneficiaries matched up perfectly. So the, the charities here and particularly in Asia um, are, are more particular about what they'll, they'll take and um, rightfully so they, they want to make sure that they have a beneficiary on the other side and that they're not overwhelmed by by taking on too much. So I felt like that was, there were all these signs, I suppose, that we had a broken system and that there were a ton, a ton, a ton of things that needed to find new homes, uh, but we didn't have a system in place that would allow for that. So I, my key insight was basically, I was the demographic I was trying to serve. And that the one of the main reasons that items weren't being exchanged is because of this time quotient that moms have no time, or if they do, they want to spend it with their kids, or they want to do something meaningful with that time. And so I, I figured it had to be free home pickups to collect the items that had been outgrown. And then we had to do all of the work on behalf of the mom in order to unlock that value and, and exchange to another family. Um, so I, I really just set about creating a system that would, would keep things in circulation and, and not go to waste and, uh, and create value, shared value amongst, amongst families. And uh, in the early days, I would do the home collections. I would drive around Hong Kong, get lost many times and had lots of uh, difficult parking experiences. <laughs> But I, I, I would go around to homes and collect items and then I would do all the photographing and, and price list the items. And then over time, yeah, we built up a team and, uh, and now we've recirculated over 250,000 items. We have lots of tech that supports uh, what we do, how we do it, and, uh, and have built up a scalable uh, infrastructure that that allows this to be brought to to families everywhere which was always the goal it's been uh, it is a challenging uh, model and um, and now we've we've really figured out how how to do it at scale and it's uh, it's been a very rewarding journey that's that's truly amazing and I love that it really came from the the sense of mission like you actually combined not just your passion for fashion but also the mission piece. Um, and I think that that's really cool. And that's been kind of like the seed of why you decided to go down this path and, and grow um, and grow this company. So I wanted to take a step back and talk about those early days. How did you know, aside from, you know, you yourself seeing this as a problem, how did you see if there was demand for this product? Like, how did you get the very first customers in, in your door? 
Yeah, we, I, I think I was just, I was at the heart of this demographic. So I knew from just speaking amongst my, my mom's groups and baby groups that uh, every time I mentioned it, everyone's eyes would light up like, why is, why doesn't this already exist? And oh my gosh, like, just tell me when it's launched. And so we already had what I felt was a pipeline. Like we already had uh, people that were uh, anxiously awaiting our, our, uh, arrival. And then in the very early days to build up uh, stock, I was buying the stock from parents. And I could also tell that um, our information was being readily shared and uh, and the inventory was very easy to, to get our hands on because, again, this is a problem that people were just looking for solutions and, and wanted to unlock some some value in the things that, that were outgrown. So um, in the early days, yeah, the sell side was where I focused um, our first energy on building that uh, that pipeline of sellers. And then the customer side, I think it was day two, if not even day one, that we had orders from strangers. So we had, of course, people that I knew uh, that shopped from us in the early days. And uh, we opened with probably 1,000, 2,000 items. And then uh, from week one, for sure, we had orders from people that I didn't recognize the names, which is always the biggest celebration when you see an order come through and you're like, I don't know them. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and, you know, marketplaces are, are hard to build, right? Because as you said, you have to go find the sellers and then you have to go find the buyers. How did you go find the sellers and and the buyers? Yeah, the sellers were definitely community built, so they were uh, within within or one rung out of my my inner circle. So uh, just started yeah with people I knew and asked people to share, and uh, and on the customer side, I I honestly don't remember much more than. We probably we had an email list because we had a coming soon landing page on the website, so people had entered their emails that way, and then I probably just sent it out to my WhatsApp groups um, just to share that that we had opened. And uh, and one of the things from the beginning, and continues to be the case today, is that we really. Uh, lean on moms in our community to be our amplifiers. So we've we've always just focused on delivering a great experience, so that moms will share us with with their communities. And uh, and I think that's the most powerful form of marketing is if you're actually deliver delivering something people want to share with others. And uh, and so that continues to be our main marketing strategy is just delivering a great experience that has virality and that people feel serve their lives so that they want to share with others and uh, and improve their lives as well. Definitely. I think word of mouth is so powerful because if it was like a Facebook ad that was served to me versus if my friend told me about this company, mm-hmm. it's just such a, such a massive difference. And so I know that in the early days, you said you even started like buying some of the clothes from the sellers uh, to build up your inventory. How did you, like, did you guys fundraise to get um, you know, like a bunch of uh, funding in to to get started, or did you did you bootstrap? No, I bootstrapped for the first year and a half, um, and kept costs very light. Mostly worked from home, and then ended up uh, moving to a shared office, but kept everything very very uh, tight in terms of uh, cost basis. And then I I fundraised for the first time in two thousand eighteen. And, uh, and that was a friends and family round. And that was really uh, 
predicated on the fact that I knew we had something that worked. We, we had product market fit. We had uh, achieved enough in terms of that um, validation that I felt that if we raised capital, we would really be able to take it to another step, which would otherwise take us much longer to reach. So that, that capital injection was really to start building tech uh, to prove out that, um, that this was a model that that was uh, a tech model ultimately and uh, and that that we needed to build both tech and operational uh, excellence in order to uh, to scale so it went from being something quite small and uh, not a side hustle because I was spending a lot of time on it but um, but it it went from being something that I was still uh, contemplating what what the future was to something that I was certain that I, I wanted to build out and see see the future of. And what were you thinking at that point in time? Like, was it the money was mostly to be spent on making the processes more efficient? Because with like a fashion marketplace, there's a lot of operational work behind the scenes that people may not realize. So was it really more on that front? Or was it like, expanding into new countries, new regions? What what was, were you? Yeah, it was really to build tech. So we we had built the, the company with just a band-aided together uh, solution of tools that existed that we were um, just, yeah, we, we were doing everything in Apache way and uh, and had learned enough through the tech that we had been using of what we would build. And it kind of goes back to that original Magento build where I had already imagined the perfect dashboard, the perfect experience. And, um, and so we wanted to start building towards that. So it was really to build our first uh, backend and our first uh, custom tech that we still uh, build on today. And uh, and start that journey of of transitioning to becoming a tech company versus uh, doing this sort of patched together operational experience. It was it was much more that I I knew it had to be a tech company in order to to grow and scale. So that was that was what the capital was for, and then also to build out our first um, first team. Really, got it, got it. Um, and at that point in time, was it? just you working on the business or you already had um, employees or were they more interns part-time to keep the costs low? Yeah, I think at the time we had two or three interns and probably two part-time. So I really, um, from the beginning was uh, trying to assemble the best possible team at the lowest possible cost with the um, mission alignment. I think we were, we've always looked for people who've been attracted to be builders with us uh, that wanted something that felt um, both that they were building, but that, that aligned with their values and, uh, and gave them a sense of purpose beyond, again, beyond profit. Like it was, they weren't necessarily joining us because it was the highest possible paycheck, but because it made them uh, feel good about coming to work every day and that they were working on something important. So, um, the other piece of that is that in the early days, particularly, but continues today, is that I, I being part of this demographic of, of people who didn't find that fit or weren't clear on how you could marry family life and corporate life, I wanted to offer opportunities that I thought were very, very absent in, level, in the landscape at the time uh, that offered flexibility to moms. So uh, we've always had part-time opportunities on the, on the team that support 
uh, uh, yeah, a challenge and priorities where you, you want to do both, but can't necessarily marry them uh, unless there's flexibility. So um, <clears throat> I always felt that there was access to talent that was being underutilized. And, uh, and so we offered very flexible arrangements to, um, to allow for high talent to, uh, to join our team and, um, and be able to contribute, but do it on their own terms. And yeah, speaking on the motherhood side, how do you yourself actually balance, um, you know, work and and having two young children? Yeah, it's been it's been a challenge as it is for for anyone that's uh, that's balancing this very busy time in life. But um, I I say it changes over time. When they were little, uh, I tried to spend time at home as as much as possible and um and just balance work around their their schedules and that was pre-fundraise so that was the really early days when they were both uh under two and under three but um but then once they started school I think the the main thing for me is just making sure that I get home in the evenings I'm always there to put them to bed and that I just try to be present when I'm when I'm with them uh, and then also I think what was important to me from the get-go was doing something if I'm not with them if I'm at the office then it's doing something that feels purposeful that it's doing something that will uh, ultimately in some small way improve their future um, their values their ethics um, yeah and uh, and just try to be a role model for them so uh, I don't think anything's ever in perfect harmony but um but I think I've yeah it's been a it's been a good journey and uh and the kids are are definitely learning I think through through the company as well in terms of their own consumption habits and their own relationship to to the environment and and waste and uh I've been growing alongside the company in terms of my my growing journey with with sustainability and uh, circularity and I think we we all as a family benefit from from that that journey so uh yeah and it gets easier as as they're getting older now they're in full-time school so I think there's a there's definitely a period where it's uh, the most busy is when they're they're not in full-time school and COVID offered a, a special challenge in the last couple of years with homeschooling. But um, but yeah, I think there's a there's a period where it's difficult to imagine how those two things come together. Um, and then as as they uh, settle into more extended day school, then I think being a working parent becomes much much easier and much more balanced because everybody has uh, a full day and so I know at the beginning earlier in this conversation you mentioned that you didn't really see a lot of role models um, of women who were able to balance a family and also uh, a successful career now knowing what you know and having experienced it what advice would you give yourself back then around planning for a career and and a family? Well, that's a good question. Um, I really think there need to be role models. I think you need to, if there aren't within your own company, it's asking, uh, being active about it, like asking working moms, what what is that like? What are the pain points? Uh, how, what would you change? And I think one of the 
key things is if you can't see women in your own company doing it, having a very candid conversation with either HR, but, but primarily your employer, your, your direct boss is what, what type of flexibility exists within the workplace. If your child is sick or you uh, need to take them to a doctor's appointment or they have a special thing at school, you, you have a mystery reader appointment. Is there an allowance uh, for those types of things or do, is it looked upon with disdain? And I, I think that's a very important shift that employers need to take is that there's a period of life that um, is very special for, for parents that you don't want to miss out on and that you want to have space for those things. And it doesn't mean that you'll work less hard. It actually, I think if an employer plays it right and they allow for the flexibility that someone really values, uh, that person will show you in many different colors uh, their loyalty and and I think uh, work even harder to to have access to those, uh, those privileges. And um, I don't think employers see that enough that um, there are uh, challenges and priorities, but I, I do think if you make space to allow for those, those very important moments, then, uh, then the employers will be better off. The employees will, will be better off. And, uh, and I think we need to showcase that both, both for dads and for, for moms. But I think we need to showcase that there's an allowance uh, for this busy period in life. And then it does smooth out over time, but, um, but that there there's a place uh, for both and an allowance for recognizing that this type of employee and employee with young children uh, has different needs, has, um, has a lot on their plate, just, just like employees with aging parents or other, other priorities uh, that, are, that need some, some room and some allowance for, for flexibility. So I think uh, having candid conversations, having role models, uh, is probably the best way to pursue it. But if you can already see within your company that uh, someone isn't being treated well or fairly in your eyes in terms of that that balance or an allowance, then it's probably time to change if, if that's the stage of life that you're looking at. And I think it's important to understand what are the family policies, what are the leave policies, what are uh, how are employees looked at how are they tracked how are they uh, promoted are they still getting promoted if they're if they're parents and um yeah so i think all of those things are signals of and then moving into those roles before you're thinking about or before you're actively pursuing having a family i think it's important to be with an employer um before you you get pregnant that uh, that you feel is a good place to um, be contributing as an employee and also having having a family. So uh, I think that's where mine came to a head where I was in a company at the time where I was thinking about having a family that I just didn't see those two things fitting both from a corporate culture perspective, but also from a lack of uh, any um, any role models that I, I would um, look up to in terms of those those balances. And do you think actually entrepreneurship has allowed you to better balance motherhood and work? Because in that sense, you're more in control rather than being dictated almost by by the the company that you work at. Yeah, certainly. I think I think that sense of control. It doesn't. I mean, I work for sure longer hours than I would in corporate. Um, so I 
pack much more in, but I would say that sense of control that if, yeah, as I said, if there's a doctor's appointment, if there's a special occasion at school, I can work around it and I can, I can fit it in. So there is that sense of, um, uh, control over schedule and, uh, and assuring that, that you can, you can meet those important things that, uh, that are important to you and to your, your kids. But again, it's not for sure, not working less, it's just working differently and on your own terms. And I think a lot of people got a taste of that through COVID where they were able to work from home. And it probably, I think statistically meant that people were working much longer hours because they were at home and they were um, available most of the time. But a lot of people were walking their kids to school for the first time or they were uh, able to, yeah, just just be around for, for some special moments that, uh, that weren't accessible to them in the past. So yeah, I think we just have to rethink work and rethink our relationship to, uh, to being chained to a particular place for a particular set of hours and um and recognize that work can be done in many different ways in many different places in many different hours yeah and i'm very hopeful i think with this with covid i think that was maybe one of the blessings in disguise yeah um so just wrapping up our conversation today just wanted to ask you maybe two more questions um the first one is really what do you think is next for the company like what's what's next for recycle yeah, we um, we so we've been building tech all along, but we've we've built some new technology now that I think is going to completely break open our scalability, which has always been uh, the challenge with resale and with unique items is uh, the whole retail landscape is not built for this type of model. So it requires a lot of innovation around efficiency and technology. Uh, and we've built new tech that will allow our, our model to be scaled globally. And um, we're really excited about that. So um, yeah, we're, we're planning the next frontier of our, our scalability and, and hopefully bringing Recycle to parents everywhere and, uh, and creating a much more progressive circularity. So our, our ambition is, is really to be at the edge of what's possible in terms of circularity and to to stamp out waste from this very wasteful period where um kids yeah they they grow they 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 can't help it they create waste in their wake and um and we have an obligation i think to figure out how to um how to make this this period of their lives as waste-free as possible and not to impact their future just just by way of their growing so um very excited about what's ahead because I think this is a landscape uh, with a lot of innovation, huge challenge. And uh, I think the whole industry is moving towards uh, sustainable solutions. And, uh, and it's a very exciting time in the industry. I always want to be in the most exciting area of, um, of the industry. And I really feel that this is it. And uh, lots of positive solutions are ahead. Amazing. Well, we can't wait to see what comes out of Retycle next. Um, and just one last personal question for, for you. Um, and this is one that I ask all of my guests on the show, which is, you know, in the Western world, people tend to say, you know, follow your dreams and eventually the money will come. Whereas in Asia, you see a lot more around financial stability and maybe, you know, focus on um, just, you know, having a good job that pays the bills and do what you love as a hobby. So now that you've got, you know, you've spent a lot of time in Asia and also grew up in, in the West, what are your thoughts on, on this statement? 
Oh gosh, I think it's a privilege to be able to pursue your dreams and uh, and have that that uh, yeah feeling of the money will come. I think that's a privilege to be. I I feel very privileged to be able to pursue my dream and um, and yeah, the hope is that the money will come. But but for the time being, it's really been a pursuit of mission and dream. And um, and so I think it's more that if you can, uh, then I absolutely wear the North American hat of pursue your dream and the money will follow. And I, I really do think that's a huge privilege if you can work at something that you love, uh, if the stars align and you're able able to do that. I also think there's great value and stability and um, and should not be uh, overlooked that that stability um, is the backbone, I think, to a lot of families and uh, and having having things that are more secure. So I would say yeah, marriage of the two, but I think if you can pursue your dreams, uh, then by all means do, if that happens to come with financial stability, even better. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, I have no regrets though. I really feel that even though I stepped off the corporate uh, ladder and with all that security of uh, benefits, salary, et cetera, paid vacation, real time off, um, I think there's no greater feeling than, uh, than working at something with purpose and that you feel is both for the betterment of the world, but also um, gives you a sense of, of personal purpose. So um, yes, I think that's a convoluted way of saying uh, hopefully both, <laughs> but uh, pursue your dreams if you can. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing so much about you know, your career and how Retigle got started. And we can't wait to see um, what's next for, for Retigle and, and for you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, my conversation with Sarah. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, a random meeting or opportunity might actually set the course of your career. For Sarah, that was the lunch arranged by her father, which drew her into the fashion industry. Do not underestimate the value of incidental encounters. Put yourself out there and in situations where you can increase the possibility of these chance encounters. Two, sometimes the leap into a new career path may not be as scary as you might think. We often discount our existing experiences and relationships we've already built. Oftentimes, if things don't work out, it's actually quite likely you could go back to the industry or the role that you came from. So make sure you leave on good terms. Three, if your end goal is to start your own company, it's always good to not view your career path as singular and linear and just focus on building your skills within one department. Instead, try to increase your experiences across departments, which will allow you to understand the industry and a company more holistically. And lastly, in the same vein, when trying to pivot into a new department, Find similarities in your previous experience and link it to the role that you want to pivot into. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. If you liked today's episode, do share it with two friends who maybe aren't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. And of course, if you're interested in getting some one-on-one -on -one career coaching, feel free to reach out to me or follow me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore or on LinkedIn for more information. You can find the link to my social media pages in the show notes to today's episode. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, guys. I'll see you guys back here in two weeks.